The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Woo! Shut up. This is my 18th episode. This is my 18th episode. This is my 18th episode, and it is the goad. And goad stands for the greatest of all dubs. That's right. Episode. Well, it's my 18th episode uh, that I've recorded in total for this podcast. This is episode three of season two, and I I realized the lyrics of that song don't really make sense. I said that it is the goad, the episode is the goad, but then I said the goad stands for the greatest of all dugs, so that's implying that the episode is the greatest of all dugs, when we all know I am the greatest of all dugs. In our secret dug meeting of all the dugs in the world, we had a vote, and I um, you know, won as the grand dug of all the dugs so you are privileged to be in the presence of the goad so with that being said let's dive into this amazing episode you are about to experience in deep tracks in rock history that's right the place where you get the entire history of rock in little bite-sized chunks that are compressed for your consumption with your ears that also doesn't make any sense i am obviously not using a script right now so i should probably pull up my script all right let's let's start off let's let's dive into our story for today i'm going to take you back to 1948 and at that time there was a young blues musician named riley king who had this uh, amazing opportunity to perform on sunny boy williamson's radio program on KWEM in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, this was a huge opportunity for him. Uh, Sonny Boy Williamson was uh, a big name in blues music. Good evening, everybody. Tell me how do you do? And um, that was actually a clip of his song, Good Evening, Everybody, that you heard in the background there. Now, uh, you know, Riley King's gig on Williamson's show it ended up leading to more performance opportunities on the air for him and eventually even landed him a regular radio spot on WDIA, which was also in Memphis, in a show that was called the CPS Swing Club. Now, at that time, CPM music uh, was another term for race music or blues or rhythm and blues. It, you know, it was just one of the many catch-all terms for black music. And Riley King continued working at WDIA as both a singer and a disc jockey as this was, you know, the time that radio stations were shifting their content, uh, you know, more and more from live on-air performances to pre-recorded material. And it was in this role that he eventually received the nickname Beale Street Blues Boy. Now, Beale Street is uh, a famous black neighborhood and community in Memphis that was and still is a major hub for blues and rhythm and blues. In fact, in just a few episodes, we'll be talking about a young white kid named Elvis Presley, who was absolutely enamored with Beale Street and developed both his musical and clothing styles from his time frequenting Beale Street. But let's get back to Riley. 
Um, his nickname uh, was eventually shortened to just Blues Boy, and then from there, it was eventually shortened even more to BB. So BB King became to Memphis what Muddy Waters was for Chicago. Sometime in late 1949, early 1950, BB uh, King came into contact with a talent scout from Modern Records named Ike Turner. See, I told you he would turn up more and more. Now, Ike Turner had cut his teeth as a musician while still a teenager. Um, he joined a local group in his hometown of Clarksdale, Mississippi called the Top Hatters, who played uh, mostly big band arrangements. And it was kind of a large ensemble. They had over 30 members. And in uh, the late 40s, they actually split up into two different groups over a disagreement over which direction they should take, you know, with the band. And so half of them became a jazz group called the Dukes of Swing. But then the other half, led by Ike Turner, became the Kings of Rhythm. Now, as Ike said regarding their repertoire, we wanted to play blues, boogie-woogie, and Roy Brown, Jimmy Liggins, Roy Milton. Now, before we go on with Ike's story, let's take a moment to experience some of those musical influences he mentioned in that quote. We've spent, you know, a lot of time in this in this podcast or in this in this show talking about the blues so far, but we haven't really visited Boogie Woogie yet. Uh, now, as a kid, um, you know, playing piano, uh, taking piano lessons, um, there's plenty of songs and or types of music that I, I didn't enjoy as much, or that was, you know, I mentioned Susie Snowflake before. That was just like my the bane of my existence every Christmas. But um, Boogie Woogie was my absolute favorite type of music to play. And there was this one Boogie song in particular called the Bumblebee Boogie that kind of became legend in our family. And I grew up uh, listening to my older brothers playing it. And I remember thinking as a kid, you know, when I can play that song like them, then I know, I know I've made it. I'm a legit pianist. And uh, in fact, one uh, funny memory I have with the song when I was about 12 or 13 years old, you know, I'm just churning away on the song trying to really get it down and I remember as I was playing the song there was this ant crawling across the keyboard of the piano as I was playing it now it you know it wasn't a bumblebee obviously but it was close enough for me like in that moment like haha there's like a insect crawling while I'm playing a song about insects so I just watched the ant the whole time you know I was playing the song and of course laughing at it while the poor ant was you know experiencing its version of like a level 10 earthquake or whatever um but okay i, I want to play some audio of jack fina playing this song jack fina was actually the one who adapted it into a boogie woogie from the original rimsky korsakov so yes this this does come from an older orchestral piece called flight of the bumblebee by the russian composer rimsky korsakov but all right so here's the uh the boogie woogie the jack fina performance of it Um, uh, a great representative artist, though, uh, of Boogie Woogie is actually a kid named Sugar Child Robinson. He was actually a child piano prodigy. He received a lot of attention uh, appearing on television and, and even in movies. Um, so I'm actually going to play some audio from the 1946 film No Leave, No Love, which had a scene featuring his piano prowess. And, and in this scene, I want to point out, in this scene, he's only eight years old. So as you listen to it, you're listening to an eight-year-old kid play. Hey, it's a player piano. That's no player, that's me. Well, don't stop. Play something. Um, okay, so now I'm going to play some clips of those artists that Ike had mentioned by name in that quote. Now, these three artists were part of a music scene that had developed a genre known as jump blues. 
So first, I'm going to play a clip of Roy Brown's 1947 release, Good Rockin' Tonight, which, yes, this is before rock would emerge as a genre, let alone before the term would be used as a name for that genre. So if you were paying attention last episode, you'll remember that rock and roll came from a hokum-esque euphemism for sex. So I'll let you draw your own conclusions about what this song is about. I heard the news. There's good rockin' tonight. Notice the walking bass line. And now I'll play a clip of Roy Milton's 1948 release, Hop, Skip, and Jump. Again, we have that walking bass line, you'll notice. And finally, a clip of Jimmy Liggins' 1948 release, Cadillac Boogie. And I'll urge you in advance to remember this Liggins clip because we're going to be revisiting it in a little bit. So again, just listen to that bass line. I had to have it boogie with the woogie wouldn't wait. Notice he's singing about a car. All right, you, you can definitely hear early rock music in those songs, especially with the, the Milton and Liggins clips. Liggins, that's like a, such a fun name to say, Jimmy Liggins. Jimmy Liggins. Jimmy Liggins. All right. Anyway, I want to point out that these are the types of songs that I was talking about last episode that were being pumped out on the airwaves late at night and sold in local record stores, you know, being absorbed by white middle class teens who were now discovering this other vein of black music that had stayed more or less within the black community up until this point. But let's get back to Ike. When he had first met B.B. King, he was working as a talent scout for the Bihari Brothers at Modern Records. And it was through him that B.B. King would start recording with Modern Records and their subsidiary in L.A., RPM Records. Um, now, later in 1951, while the Kings of Rhythm were driving between gigs, Ike reconnected with B.B. King during a show that he was doing in Chambers, Mississippi. So now this is, you know, this is after Ike had, had connected B.B. King with Modern Records and some time has gone by and then they reconnect. And Ike realizes that B.B. has been very busy since they had first met. The, the Bihari brothers had linked him up with Sam Phillips, a white guy in Memphis, whose objective was to provide an affordable recording service for amateur black musicians. Sam founded the Memphis Recording Service in 1950 for this very purpose. And B.B. King was among the first musicians to benefit from it. Um, King's recordings with Sam Phillips, in fact, became the material that the Bihari brothers marketed through their record label. So with that in mind, B.B. Uh, King referred Ike to Sam Phillips to get some of the recordings of the Kings of Rhythm made. Now, about a year earlier in 1950, Ike had recruited a saxophonist named Jackie Brenston, who also sometimes did vocals for their gigs. And when the Kings of Rhythm went in to record with Sam Phillips, they had to come up with an original song like on kind of short notice. So what they ended up doing was, as Brenston put it, We simply borrowed from another jump blues about an automobile, Jimmy Liggins' Cadillac Boogie. Except instead of singing about a Cadillac, they decided to sing about the Oldsmobile Rocket 88, which had been introduced earlier that year. So using 12-bar blues as their harmonic template, they created a song called Rocket 88. And now if you Google, what was the first rock and roll song? The results will say Rocket 88. And there are a number of reasons why Rocket 88 is seen as the first rock song. Um, one of them is the fact that Sam Phillips said so. <laughs> and I know we haven't really covered Sam Phillips in depth yet, but when we do, you'll see why his word carries so much weight. Uh, but there are other reasons. So l actually, let's listen to a clip of it first so you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, pay attention to that guitar. Right, you hear the, the timbre of the guitar? So, 
you know, you might have noticed in there, uh, one of the biggest reasons is seen as the first rock song is the presence of a slightly distorted guitar, which we haven't really had before this. Now, legend has it that this the sound, this distorted guitar, was actually the result of the guitar amp being damaged while in transit on Highway 61, which led to them trying to um, hold the cone in place by stuffing the amp with newspapers. Now, now whatever the case, um, it, it gave the guitar part a sound that would come to define rock music forever after. Now, you combine that with the driving rhythm, accelerated boogie bass line, and blues-based riffs, and you've got a rough template for subsequent early rock songs. The one thing that is missing, though, is the backbeat. You might remember I briefly discussed the backbeat with my clone in my overview episode. The backbeat is this emphasis on beats two and four in rock music that um, is usually done through hitting the snare drum on those beats uh, with the bass drum striking on beats one and three. So in a sense, Rocket 88 is still something of a liminal song that is proto-rock, you know, but not quite rock yet. Uh, and this is actually a view held by Ike Turner himself, who said, I don't think that Rocket 88 is rock and roll. I think that Rocket 88 is R&B. But I think Rocket 88 is the cause of rock and roll existing. And he's not completely wrong. Rocket 88 would be a huge influence on Little Richard, whose drummer, Earl Palmer, is often credited as being the one to popularize the backbeat as the official heartbeat of rock and roll. But we're going to talk more about that when we do finally talk about Little Richard. Something else you should know about this song, though, is even though it was Ike Turner's Kings of Rhythm who performed it and recorded it, Rocket 88 is credited to Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats. So the song's writing and lyric credits um, were actually given to Jackie Brenston, even though Ike contends that it was a group effort and he should have shared some of the writing credit for the song. But Jackie was the one who sang on it. And as we discussed before, the 1950s were entering an era in which band leaders were no longer the headliners, but vocalists were. So the idea of a front man had been born. So if you look up the record jacket for the song Rocket 88, it shows it as Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats with the tagline featuring Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm, which if by featuring you mean AKA, then yeah, it's featuring the Kings of Rhythm. Now Ike blames the writing credit flub up on Sam Phillips. I've read other accounts that blame it on the Bihari brothers. Um, you know, whatever the case, it would be a point of contention between Ike and Jackie, especially since, according to one source I read, Ike was only paid like $20 for that recording session, um, while Jackie got to collect $910 from selling the song rights. But uh, in reality, this song was where Jackie Brenson would peak, while for Ike, it would be a, a launch pad. So, you know, despite the fact that the song would rocket up to the top of the rhythm and blues charts rocket up jackie um, would disappear into obscurity after this while ike became a staple session musician for both sam phillips and the bihari brothers and then of course down the road he would enjoy even more success as one half of the ike and tina review um now my cat is meowing right now wanting to go outside and so i need to put down the microphone real quick and let this little turd go out we're sorry all of our representatives are still assisting other customers Please remain on the line as we value your call. All right. 
Um, now, however, despite Ike's connections with the Bahari Brothers and Modern Records, um, Sam Phillips didn't license Rocket 88 through them. Instead, he went through Chess Records in Chicago. Now, this, this connection between Sam Phillips and Chess Records is important. It was around this time that you might remember, actually from Episode 7, that Sam Phillips also recorded another relatively obscure blues artist named Howlin' Wolf and likewise released those recordings through Chess Records. And if you remember, you know that would begin Wolf's relationship with the Chess Brothers. A few years later then, Wolf would actually connect the Chess Brothers with a young black songwriter named Chuck Berry, who was taking what had been started with Rocket 88 and fusing it with country music to really create the definitive sound of rock. But I want to pause in that thread of our narrative and jump over to New Orleans and talk about a guy named Antoine. Antoine Domino Jr. was born the youngest of eight kids to a Catholic French Creole family in New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, in fact, Louisiana Creole was his first language. So Antoine was performing um, piano in bars by the time he was 14 years old. And in 1947, when he was about 19, he came to the attention of a local band leader named Billy Diamond who recruited Antoine to play with his band, The Solid Senders. And that's actually one of my favorite band names. Um, now, they, uh, they, they did their gigs at this place called The Hideaway Club in New Orleans. And it was there that uh, Diamond nicknamed Antoine Fats because, uh, for one thing, the kid reminded him of the pianist Fats Waller. But um, uh, Antoine also had a large appetite. Uh, now, just two years later, though, in 1949... Fats Domino signed on with Imperial Records. And the story behind Domino's first release with Imperial Records is kind of a great, um, it sort of encapsulates his entire career in a lot of ways. So what happened is with the assistance of Dave Bartholomew, he was one of the producers at Imperial, uh, they, they, they wrote a song called The Fat Man. The song is actually based on another song by uh, an artist named Champion Jack Dupre or Dupree. Uh, called Junker Blues, that is about drug addicts. And I'll, I'll share some of the lyrics with you. Some people say I use a needle, and some people say I sniff cocaine, but that's the best old feeling in the world that I've ever seen. This song definitely falls in that category of, quote, less uh, acceptable music that we talked about last episode, right? So now here's Fats Domino's spinoff. He sings about this instead. They call me, they call me the fat man because I weigh 200 pounds. All the girls, they love me because I know my way around. I was standing, I was standing on the corner of Rampart and Canal. I was watching, watching, watching all these Creole gals. I'm going, I'm going, going away and I'm going, going to stay. Because women in a bad life, they're carrying this soul away. So it's still a little racy, right? He's, you know, he's still singing about knowing his way around with the ladies, which gives it kind of a hokum element. But it's nevertheless a very toned down version lyrically, while being a sped up version musically of Junker Blues. And releasing a more acceptable sped up version of a blues song did really well for Domino. That first record had sold a million copies by 1951. So from here, Domino would continue to cultivate the more cleaned up version of a black rhythm and blues musician. He maintained a clean cut image, always wore a suit. And of course, it helped that the dude looks like a teddy bear. <laughs> like, seriously, the next time you look at a picture of Fats Domino, picture him with little bear ears and a fuzzy fur coat. 
maybe even give him a Care Bear belly badge. Uh, and this the safe image, quote unquote, safe image extended to his music, which, um, you know, while maintaining tempos faster than what we heard in Dupre's Junker Blues would also remain in a safe middle ground outlined by his signature sound of repeating block chords over a lilting compound meter. Uh, now, Paul Friedlander, in his book, Rock and Roll, A Social History, points out that the success enjoyed by Domino's song, The Fat Man, is the first rock and roll record to achieve this level of sales. Although I should point out, The Fat Man was primarily a hit on rhythm and blues charts. It wouldn't be until 1955 that he would cross over to mainstream pop charts with his song, Ain't That a Shame. Domino's version made it to the top 10 on Billboard's pop singles chart, but then Pat Boone came along and released a cover of the song, and his version would reach number one. And Pat Boone's name will be coming up in a similar context quite a bit over the next several episodes, so be ready for that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play clips of Ain't That a Shame. Um, first, the Fats Domino version, and then the Pat Boone version. You made me cry Listen to the syncopation in particular. It's a little loose, you know, with the rhythm. Kind of more free feeling as opposed to this. Pat Boone's a little more locked in, more rigid. So you'll notice that the Pat Boone version has a much stricter adherence to a tight beat. Um, you know, there's a little more swing to Domino's version. It's definitely more bluesy. And this was generally how things went with Boone's covers. Um, they were, you know, kind of usually a more marchy version of rhythm of blues, like as if John Philip Sousa was the one <laughs> making his arrangements. And, and considering the direction that rock music would go, um, you know, it's sometimes a little baffling for us in the 21st century to even see Pat Boone as an early rock artist. And a lot of people actually don't even label him as such. They, they label him as a mainstream pop artist who covered rock songs, which is probably a more accurate description of Boone's style. Uh, but nevertheless, at the time when rock was still young, still developing, Boone was and still is by many um, considered an early rock artist. Ironically enough, however, it would be when Fats Domino would do a cover of a song that had been a Glenn Miller hit in 1940 that would help him rise even higher on the Billboard charts. In 1956, he released Blueberry Hill, and I will play clips of both versions of this song as well. First, the Glenn Miller version, and then the Fats Domino version. And, and I'm going to draw your attention to a few things. Listen to the instrumentation here, the Glenn Miller version. It's... The, the typical instrumentation you have for Glenn Miller uh, arrangements. Here in the Fats Domino, you have a backbeat. On the one, two, three, four. Now, there are some very obvious differences between the two versions. For one thing, the two artists were not really contemporaries, like, you know, Domino and Boone were. Um, they were also functioning in two totally different music genres, big band for Miller and rock and roll for Domino. And, of course, the instrumentation is totally different as well. But both versions are in compound meter, um, you know, in which each beat is broken down into three smaller beats. You might remember we talked a little bit about that in the overview episode. You also notice that Domino's version has an element that is quintessentially rock, and that is the backbeat. Now, it also has that loping bass line that is um, like a mutation of boogie woogie. Like if this bass line were a Pokemon, the boogie woogie version would be the basic and then that bass line in Blueberry Hill would be, you know, like the first generation evolution. And then by the time we get to Flea and Les Claypool, it'll be like the 12th generation evolution. I don't even know if that's a thing in Pokemon. This is a weird analogy for me to pick. I don't know anything about Pokemon. 
Um, pivoting back to something I do know, Fats Domino would continue to have hit singles throughout the rest of the decade. And I'm going to play some clips of some of those other hits. So first a clip of I'm Walking. So right away, notice the tempo, the, the speed of the music. And then the clapping, how it mimics a backbeat. That's definitely one of his more energetic... That's definitely... Oh my gosh. That's definitely one of his more energetic songs. Another song about walking is I Want to Walk You Home. But this one's a lot slower and features his usual bass line with block chord accompaniment. I wanna walk so notice the lyrics, I want to walk you home. Very innocuous, very innocent, young love. And now here's a clip of Valley of Tears. So yeah, saxophones in this one. I want you and then to notice the vocals, but still the walking bass line. This one likewise features that prototypical bass line while featuring gospel-esque backup singers. You'll notice every one of these songs is in compound meter. That's, that's a carryover from the blues that's definitely formed um, the core of Domino's style. And we'll actually be revisiting this when we talk about reggae. It's, it's speculated that some of the forms of music from which reggae sprang were actually Jamaican artists' attempts to duplicate Domino's triplet rhythms, which then or evolved into chunking. But that's still a long ways off. We, we've got a lot of ground to cover before we get to reggae. Now, Fats Domino would appear in a couple of films in 1956. Um, one of them was Shake, Rattle, and Rock, and the other one was The Girl Can't Help It. I'm going to be doing an in-depth analysis of both of those films as long as a, along with a few others um, in, in a separate episode where I'm going to just focus on... Uh, there was a bunch of films that came out in this decade that served basically as rock music showcases, and I, I want to talk about all of them together back-to-back. -to -back. So we'll, we'll cover that when we get there. Um, but this actually brings us to a part of Domino's story that is very rock and roll, and that is Riot's. On November 2nd, 1956, he was doing a show in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Partway into the act, a riot broke out and the police ended up using tear gas on the crowd. And then it was at that moment that Fats Domino channeled some hidden acrobatic skills he probably didn't know he had and jumped out a window in an effort to avoid being caught in all the craziness. Uh, he and a few of his bandmates came out of the experience with some injuries, but nothing major. But what's crazy is, is this wasn't a one-time thing. He had four major riots break out at his shows during his career. Four. So uh, you just heard his music. It's not exactly something you would mosh to. Right? Why would anybody riot as a result of his music? You know, it must be that rock and roll influence. After all, that's what happened with Blackboard Jungle, isn't it? Rock is making people riot. I'm going to read some quotes from Domino's biographer, Rick Coleman, who said the riots were... Partly because of integration, but also the fact that they had alcohol at these shows. So they were mixing alcohol plus dancing plus the races together for the first time in a lot of these places. So this, this stigma hovered around Fats Domino's shows badly enough that in 1957, he was banned from performing at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. And his story is not... Um, it's it's actually very typical of a lot of art other artists we're going to look at um, in early rock where you had this similar situation of the, this first time really mixing races and kind of a large scale. It's a lot of young people, alcohol. Um, uh, so it's, 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 so a lot of these kind of devolved into some of them into riots. Some of them, honestly, it was just kids having a good time that the, 
but because local authorities were looking for a riot that they saw what they wanted to see, right? It became a self-proclaimed prophecy, that kind of a thing. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that more later. Um, nevertheless, despite the risk of riot, uh, live shows and touring were Domino's bread and butter. It's just like how in that Ruth Brown quote that I read last episode in which she talked about how touring was the biggest way for black artists to make money since there was so much red tape and other obstacles for them in the recording industry. Um, Now, according to Ebony magazine, Fats Domino was on the road 340 days a year, but he was making up to $2,500 per evening, grossing over $500,000 a year. Now, I had to look up how much that is in today money. So according to dollartimes.com, that's over $5 million in today's money. Now, in that same Ebony article, uh, Fats Domino also told readers that he owned 50 suits, 100 pairs of shoes, and a $1,500 horseshoe stick pin. So, uh, yeah, he was doing all right. But he was he was putting in the hours for that kind of money, right? Um, I, I You know, this is before James Brown, who is known as the hardest working man in show business. So I, I would say that before James Brown, Fats Domino was probably the hardest working man in show business. But actually, that's where we're going to leave uh, Domino's story for now. Um, we're going to start working our way back up to Chicago. And first in our journey from New Orleans to Chicago, we're going to make a quick stop in St. Louis, Missouri. But that's also where we're going to stop this episode. And we'll pick up where we left off next episode with the story of Chuck Berry. So be there or be square. And until then, keep it deep. deep. As usual, you can find information about where to purchase or access all music clips featured in this episode on my website. You can also find the latest Deep Tracks news on my website and on my Instagram at Deep Tracks Podcast. If you breathe oxygen... You should follow me on Instagram and Facebook. Oh, and by the way, my website is deeptrackspodcast.com.